I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Fancy seeing you here, my friend. Welcome into another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. I'm Clint Davis. If you've stuck with us before, you'll know me as the guy who talks about movies and television on this program where we dive into all things streaming out there in the multiverse. And in a little bit, we'll be hearing from my good friend Andy Sedlak, our music editor here on the program. He talks about all the tunes. And, of course, he'll be adding five new songs to his never-ending, greatest, most perfect playlist of all time. He wasn't with us last month, but let's welcome him back with a hearty hello. He's done listening to all that vinyl that I uh, told him to sit down in his basement and not come out until he listened to every piece. And now we'll see. I think think his beard's about 20 feet long, but he's going to come with us uh, this month for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Hello, I'm Clint Davis once again. Usually I bring you this show from uh, my end anyway in my closet in Cincinnati, Ohio. But as I've been talking about for the last few months, uh, we've been in the middle of moving and and selling our house and everything. So now I am bringing you this, my part of the Stream Police Podcast, from a closet in Columbus, Ohio, or to be more accurate, it's Hilliard, Ohio, but it's really it's the Columbus area. So now I'm in Columbus. Andy is still in his basement in Dayton. So I, I'm guessing until he can, you know, find a basement somewhere in Cleveland that he can record the program, he's going to be with you from his basement in Dayton. But thank you very much for tuning in. If this is your first time on the show, this is our 61st episode. We've been around for just a little while. We only do the show every, once every month. So we're not like some programs where we hit you with new content every week, every other day, you know, just blathering on. We try to really take care of our parts and uh, make this show something that you really want to listen to and that you look forward to every month. So thank you very much for tuning in, and I hope that uh, you'll tell a friend or something uh, and, and and pass this show along to them if there's somebody who likes uh, you know entertainment, if they are into serious discussions about uh, about movies and about television, about music, and you know maybe discussions is the wrong thing because this show you know we don't do interviews like some other shows. We have some special editions where Andy and I sit together and talk about things. We've only done that a couple times, but this really is a show of monologues. And we like to get your emails, and, and we'll answer those when we get them. Um, but it's not really, this is not a dialogue show. This is kind of, you know, the, the two of us take in a lot of things. We give you our thoughts on them, and uh, we hope that you'll enjoy what we have to say, and we'd love to hear what you have to say in return. So... Uh, like I said, I'm in a new closet, so if the sound isn't great this month, I haven't got it totally figured out. I'm getting this new closet space uh, figured out. I'm a little hotter in here than I usually am, 
Uh, but yeah, I'm sitting in a closet still. Just now, I'm I'm in Columbus instead of Cincinnati. Uh, I know Andy in his segment. If you are a Beatles fan, he's going to be talking about Revolver, and I'm really interested to hear what he has to say about it because I remember being a kid, and as a kid, I used to like love watching VH1. I was a, a big nerd even back then. I was watching VH1 all the time. And they used to do all these countdown shows. And I remember they did a countdown show of the 100 greatest albums of all time. And I used to love how VH1 would do these countdown series. they do the 100 whatever. hundred. I remember they did one of the 100 greatest hard rock bands of all time. And I loved that that countdown. It really is one of the things that got me into kind of thinking about media and thinking about the things that I listened to and really, you know, looking into them and, and just, you know, really considering what I'm, I'm listening to instead of just listening to it and moving on. But they used to, the way they used to do it was they would do like, you know, these top 100s and they would count them down. Each episode would, would be 10 of the entries, you know, so it'd be like 100 to 91. And they would do that, you know, for an hour and they would air them in two hour blocks every night for five nights in a week. So you'd have the whole 100 countdown done in a week and you'd have spent, you know, 10 hours watching it. So it was a really cool way to do it. And it gave them enough time to kind of talk at length about each, you know, thing that was in the countdown. So it gave you some real information. So I really I used to like those. And I remember when I was a kid, they did the 100 greatest albums ever. And I wasn't as, you know, studied on music yet. I knew that I loved music and I used to listen to, you know, a lot of it. But I didn't listen to like a lot of different artists but I watched this countdown, and it talked about all these records I'd never heard of. And I remember what the number one album, the greatest album of all time, according to VH1's list, was Revolver, the Beatles album. And, you know, I had never heard of that album, so I immediately, the next time that my mom, like, would take me to Best Buy, I had I bought, I bought a copy of Revolver. They had it on CD there. And, you know, I, I got into that record a lot, and I liked it a lot, and got into the Beatles' whole catalog. But, you know, I'm not sure I'd call Revolver the best record ever. I wouldn't even call it the best Beatles record. But it's definitely like a great mix of the styles that made the Beatles so great and one of the first times that I feel like they really stretched their legs out and experimented a little bit and really rocked a lot. So uh, I'll be interested, you know, to hear what Andy has to say about Revolver after all these years because, you know, he knows more about music, especially about rock music, than you know, most people that uh, you're ever going to meet in your life. So it's it'll be interesting to hear what he's got to say about that classic record. Does it live up to the hype after all these years? All right, let me start the show as I always do by lighting up my stogie. I got a Chris in the new closet. Here we go. As we get this thing going. All right. Getting it smelling nice and good for the next person already right here on the Stream Police Podcast. So let me start the show as I always do after I light my stogie by diving into the greatest television theme song of all time this week. And we've been doing this segment now for, this is the 34th week we've done this, 34th month I should say. And our 34th entry into the canon of the greatest TV show theme songs of all time. And I have stated before in this segment that the 70s and 80s, I feel, were the peak age of great theme songs in TV history. I think most of you would agree with me there. Songs, you know, that were being used for TV theme songs back then were often good enough to be put on Top 40 radio. And they were opening TV shows every week. I mean, these were truly, like, great, catchy songs that would become hits. And this week's edition is no different. I'm going to take you back right now 
to September 1975 on ABC when audiences first met a New York high school teacher and his class of hoodlums who were called the Sweat Hogs. Welcome back Your dreams were your ticket out the show is Welcome Back, Cotter, and it was an instant hit sitcom for ABC because it had this relatable setting. You know, who didn't go to public high school, basically? Most people did. It had a diverse cast, and it had some really memorable characters that filled out this cast. You know, just, just crazy characters in this high school class. The show followed a teacher named Gabe Cotter who took a job at the high school that he attended as a teen. But the hook of the show is that Cotter is in charge of teaching this remedial class of kids who have no interest in learning whatsoever. Just basically a big group of, you know, of jerk-offs, pretty much. They just want to sit around in class and, you know, make fun of everything. And, and you know, they don't take anything seriously. And that's that's the class that he's got to teach. The group is nicknamed the Sweat Hogs. And for, to further the hook of the show, Cotter himself used to be in the group himself when he was a slacker and he was going to the school. So the kids in the in the sweat hogs relate to him and they think of him as kind of one of their own because he was like one of the original sweat hogs. So it's it's kind of cool. It's a teacher who, you know, himself was kind of a shithead back in the day and now he's kind of called back to his old school to teach these shitheads basically. So it's an interesting, you know, premise for a program. Welcome back to that same old place that you laughed about. Gabe Kaplan co-created and starred in the show as Cotter. But the show was actually a breakout vehicle for John Travolta, who ended up playing the de facto leader of the Sweat Hogs, this Italian kid named Vinny Barbarino. The characters were definitely vivid. You had plenty of, you know, great just guys in the Sweat Hogs that everybody will remember if they watch that show. And, you know, the characters were a lot of fun. But I got to tell you, the catchy theme song was the crown jewel of Welcome Back, Cotter. Well, the names have all changed since you hung around. But those dreams have remained the song which was called welcome back was written and performed for the show by john sebastian now if you're a nerd of 1960s music and andy might be with me here you'll probably know john sebastian as the front man of the rock and roll hall of fame outfit the love and spoonful so you know that band had hits like do you believe in magic summer in the city and the show's producers wanted a theme song that sounded like something from the love and spoonful so they went right to the source, and they asked John Sebastian to cut the theme song, and he did. Here's a great little fact about this. This song was so great that the producers changed the title of the show to match it. So when the series was being developed, it was actually supposed to be just called Cotter. But Sebastian was having a hard time rhyming anything with the word Cotter. So he ended up writing like a more general tune about making a comeback somewhere. And he just called it Welcome Back. So they actually changed the show's name to Welcome Back Cotter after hearing this proposed theme song from John Sebastian. And a full three-minute version of the song was released to radio in 1976 and ended up becoming a number one hit. That's how great this theme song was. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. A number one hit from a TV show theme song has happened before, but I mean, it's still crazy to think about that to this day. I mean, like, could you imagine the theme song for, 
you know, the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, like hitting top 40 radio and being number one over, you know, the chain smokers or something. I mean, it's, it's insane to imagine. It would just never happen today. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. We always could spot a friend. Welcome back. And I smile when I think I must have been. Now, the song Welcome Back has endured mostly thanks actually to rappers who apparently love this song. This song has been sampled by a bunch of rappers over the years. Mace sampled it, Lupe Fiasco, AZ sampled it, Onyx sampled it. It's one of my all-time favorite TV theme songs. You know, when I first started doing this segment, I came up with a short list of songs that I wanted to use eventually in the segment. And I've hit most of them, but, you know, Welcome Back was one of the ones that was on that list at the very beginning that I hadn't got to yet. And I, so I, I finally put it on here, um, and I'm, I'm glad to finally welcome it into the canon. And what could ever lead you? So Welcome Back by John Sebastian from Welcome Back, Cotter. That's our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. And Welcome Back, Cotter, there's actually an interesting fact about that show. It was a big ratings juggernaut for like the first two years it was on. So 75 it debuts. It's instantly a huge hit right out of the gate for ABC. And and then in its second season, it still remained a big hit. But, man, the ratings dropped off so fast after that. The show only ended up going for four seasons. And a lot of people blame it on the fact that the guys who played the Sweat Hogs looked way too old. Like, you know, you think about Travolta in the mid-'70s. You, you think about what he looked like in Greece. That's basically what he looked like in Welcome Back, Cotter, and he was playing a high school kid in both of those things, and he looked, you know, like just way too old. He had this really thick, like, 5 o'clock shadow all the time and, you know, chest hair that would, like, put your dad to shame. So it, it, the fact that these guys were, like, almost 30 playing high school kids by the time the fourth season rolled around really kind of ruined the show, and I guess Gabe Kaplan wanted to make wanted to change the show to where Cotter ended up, like, getting a job at his community college and the Sweat Hogs became students there or something, you know, something contrived to keep them all together, but it never came to pass. The show ended up just getting the plug pulled, and it was gone after only four seasons, but that theme song still endures. All right, so let's move on. I talked last time on the show, you know, it was October. I like to talk about scary, you know, television, scary movies in the October issue, but I got to say it's, you know, it's November, it's early November, so I'm still feeling, you know, like talking about horror, so I'm going to talk about a few things on this uh, month's episode that have to do with horror movies, horror shows. And one of those is uh, Netflix's new series, The Haunting of Hill House, which is one of the shows that I picked out in my uh, fall TV preview over the uh, our, our September and October episodes. I told you about five shows that were debuting each month that I was going to be checking out. And Haunting of Hill House was one of the ones that I picked out for October, one of the five shows. And I'm so glad that I did pick this show out because uh, Beth and I are almost through the first season, which is on Netflix right now, streaming for you. And I got to tell you, it's one of my favorite shows that I've seen on Netflix. Just a lot of care done uh, in making this thing, the uh, from the casting to the direction, really taking some risks, some storytelling risks, really 
flexing some artistic muscle in this show and really making a legitimately scary television show, like not relying on cheap stuff like jump scares. And, you know, jump scares always get a bad rap. I think jump scares can be really effective. And there's a reason why a lot of people use them because they are, it is a cool way to scare people. You know, I mean, it's one of those things that you, you can only kind of do in movies and, you know, I, I do like a good jump scare when it's done well, but and some of the best movies ever have done them. So I think kind of when people dismiss jump scares as stupid, they're they're, you know, selling themselves short. But anyway, this show has a lot of that atmospheric kind of horror that people really, you know, love when they're talking about some of the great horror films of all time. And if you haven't seen this show yet, the way it was kind of pitched and the way that I, I kind of read it being described was people described it as like, this is us meets, um, I don't know, like Murder House, like the American Horror Story, the first season, Murder House. So it was like a horror, but it also was a family drama. And I would say that that's not really accurate. It it does have some similarities with Murder House, um, but it, it I wouldn't really say that it's like This Is Us because it's so grim and this family is so dysfunctional at its core. What it's really about is it's about this family who uh, in the 90s, uh, the mom and dad had a job where, you know, the, the mom would kind of design the houses. The dad would renovate the houses. They would buy them and flip flip these houses. And they move into this one house in Massachusetts that turns out to be, you know, haunted. And it's got all these spirits in it and these weird, just strange things keep happening in this house. So these kids are like raised for a year or so. I don't even know how long they lived there. It wasn't that long, but it left a huge mark on all of them and really damaged them for life, scarred them for life. And it resulted in, uh, I don't think it's a spoiler because they give it away in the first episode, it resulted in the mom dying somehow under very mysterious circumstances. So it, the family basically like got ruined because of them living in this house, which turned out to be haunted. And the whole show is kind of about them years later as adults, how that time period affected them, how it affected their relationships, how it affected their um relationships with each other, their outside relationships, just their mindset. And it really fucked them all up and it split the family up big time. And there's a lot of resentment going on. And it's just a, it's, it's got a lot of complex kind of family stuff going on, but it's, like I said, it's really grim. And the people in the show are just miserable people. Um, it's, this is not a show like you're not going to feel good at all watching this show. So if you're looking for something, so if you hear anyone describe it, like this is us, then you know, it's it's not like that because this is us will make you feel good a lot of times. It makes you feel bad sometimes, but usually ends up making you feel good or laugh somewhere along the way. You're not going to laugh watching The Haunting of Hill House, and you're not going to feel good watching this show. It's just kind of grim and and brutal. It's not really gruesome though. So if you get if you don't like blood and gore and stuff, I'd still give this one a shot because it's not like that. It's not a serial killer kind of thing. You're not people aren't getting their heads lopped off. There's not really a lot of gross makeup in the show. There's a little bit, but it's not like that. It's just a creepy ghost story and it's you know really a story about a family and about the frayed relationships because of trauma. I mean, it could be any trauma, you know, it doesn't have to be a haunted house. It could be that their mom got killed. Uh, you know, she went to the war and she got blown up or whatever. I mean, it could be any tragic thing happened to them. And all of them are kind of living through that now. So, but it just happens to be a ghost. So that makes it even more interesting. And the show is just, like I said, really well done, really well directed, well written. I love the acting. 
in the show. The show was created by Mike Flanagan, and Mike Flanagan is a guy who's spent his entire career in horror. He's the guy behind the Ouija movie a few years ago, which really wasn't that good. Um, he's done a lot of movies, though. He did the movie Hush, which was actually supposed to be pretty good. I didn't see Hush, but it was about this, like, uh, I think she's deaf. Yeah, she's a deaf writer who lives basically in isolation, and she's getting hunted by this serial killer in her house, um, and she's deaf. So, I mean, that's kind of, that's pretty terrifying, you know, when you're being hunted by somebody. So it, that was supposed to be a really good movie. It got, you know, good reviews and everything. I haven't seen it yet, but that just sounds like a terrifying premise. But I got to say, you know, after looking at the guy's resume, he's done a lot of stuff, but The Haunting of Hill House seems way kind of above everything else. So maybe he's kind of been working toward this for his whole career. And I think the show's been popular. It's gotten a lot of buzz. And I don't know where they're going to go from here. I haven't finished the season, so I'm not sure if it's opening itself up for a second season. Um, where I'm at in the show, though, i got to think that it, it doesn't. I've got to think this is kind of a closed-ended, one-season, mini-series, one-off kind of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Everything doesn't have to be, we got to do a second season, we got to do a third season. It doesn't have to be that way. People are fine with a one-off, good, well-told story that wins awards, gets a lot of ratings. It's on Netflix forever. People can always watch it every Halloween. It'll always be scary. Um, and you kind of move on from there. I'm, I'm fine with that. I like when people do that kind of thing. Uh, but we'll see what happens. I, I really I love the cast, though. It's Carla Gugino is kind of the biggest actor in the cast that you've probably heard of. Timothy Hutton as well, you know, Oscar winner there. Um, but it's not a huge, like, well-known A-list cast, but everyone does a great job. And i got to say, from the casting director standpoint, they did a fantastic job with the women of the show because there are three sisters and two brothers in the family. So it's a big family. And the actors they got to play the adult versions of all of the women, especially, the, the resemblance is, like, uncanny, but they're not really related to each other. So it's, you know, these actors aren't related to each other. So it's really kind of cool and creepy how well they cast these actors and they got good actors to do it so i've really enjoyed what i've seen so far from the haunting of hill house but uh i have to say you know it is it is a really creepy show and it actually scared beth more than i've seen like any we've watched a lot of horror movies together a lot of horror shows together you know every season of, of horror story we've watched those together and i've never seen her like not want to go to sleep after anything except for uh, the Haunting of Hill House. This show has really creeped her out, and it is. It's really scary, and it's got some, just some some really scary situations, and and the ghosts in it are well imagined and well done. So it's just a, it's a very solid piece of storytelling, and the fact that it's horror, I really like that because when it when it's done with care, horror can be about as good as anything that you've ever seen. I mean, there's a reason why everybody puts Hitchcock up there as one of the greatest directors of all time because he was able to take horror and make it into something that you could really seriously, you know, you could take very seriously as an art form. And he took a lot of care on it. And there's a reason why his movies are some of the best of all time because they hit you in a way that dramas can't always hit you. I mean, they really affect you. They shake you up. So that's what I'll say about The Haunting of Hill House. Uh, it's right now on Netflix, 10 episodes in the first season. And um, as I said, I really like what I've seen. Some very good little twists and turns that made sense uh but it's not really it doesn't really rely on that it's just a, a good piece of storytelling with a good mystery hanging over the entire thing what happened to their mom you know you're kind of wondering that the whole time and that's led to a lot of splits and divisions in the family and the way they explore that is pretty fascinating so i really recommend you checking this one out if you like horror tv if you like horror movies um 
Give it a watch. It's The Haunting of Hill House. It's on Netflix right now. That house is the most dangerous place in the world for all of us. And that's why I told your sisters to stay put. You really think they will? I've mentioned before here on the show that I think, you know, Netflix original series sometimes feel a little bit, they feel a little bit slapped together sometimes. They don't always feel like, you know, they don't feel like HBO series, but but this one does. This one feels like they really took some time, a lot of planning involved. There's one episode especially uh, where the episode opens with like a 20-minute long single take uh, performance that is so tense to watch, and it involves all these actors. It's not like a one-actor kind of thing, but it feels like you know, you're watching a piece of theater unfold and you're just waiting i just kept saying i'm like please just cut because i hate when they i hate these long takes they make me so uh nervous when i'm watching them and that's the obviously the whole point but the episode yeah it opened with like a 20 minute long take that involved every actor in the cast and it was really really well done and it um was one of the better episodes that i'd seen of the show so far so sticking with horror, I wanted to talk to you real quick about a movie that I watched recently for the first time ever. You know, I am a big horror nerd, and I try to watch all the classics. And I watched a, a, a lot of good ones this year that I hadn't seen before. I had never seen the original, you know, Bela Lugosi Dracula. I watched that for the first time, loved it. I had never seen, um, you know, The White Zombie with Bela Lugosi, loved that one as well. I had never seen Don't Look Now, finally caught that, loved it. Never had seen The Wicker Man before the original one. Loved that. Instant favorite. And I also, for the first time, watched the movie Suspiria. And if you've never seen Suspiria, it is from 1977. And it was directed by Dario Argento. And anybody who's into horror you know, knows that name. He's one of the icons of of horror, especially in the 70s, 80s. And, you know, like Italian horror, he's like the first guy you always think of. And so I had really high expectations going into Suspiria. And they're remaking it. With Dakota Johnson, and if you've seen the trailers for it, the, the trailers for the new Suspiria, which comes out this year, are really creepy. And I was like, man, this this is a great like setting for a horror movie. It's set in a ballet school, and you know, it's just basically a big cast of women, and people are, are being killed, and what's happening, and there's some kind of occult thing going on. And so I didn't know what the story was really, but I I checked it out from the library, a copy of, of Suspiria. And sat down to watch it. I watched it with my mom, actually. She wanted to watch it with me. And I got to tell you, I was really, in the end, pretty disappointed by this movie. I did not come away with it impressed as I thought I would be. Suspiria is one of those rare films that you always hear like horror buffs talk about. And it's like one of those holy grail horror movies. It's like one of those you have to see. It's one of the all-time classics. It's great. And, you know, people constantly give it five-star reviews. It's like The Wicker Man. It's like Don't Look, Don't Look Now. Um, and both of those movies I thought were worthy of a five-star review. I loved both of them. I thought they were so imaginative and legitimately scary and just well done. But Suspiria, I came away just not that impressed. I really liked the ending. I loved the climax of the movie. But everything other than that, it just felt really... First off, what got me about the original version of the movie was the fact that it was it was made to be dubbed. So they didn't record any, Argento didn't record any sound when he was doing the movie. I read this later because I, it was something I had to look up because the movie, the sound in the movie is so bad. And with sometimes with 70s movies, 60s movies, you get that, right? I mean, you've seen those those movies where it just, everything sounds dubbed and it like almost doesn't match up with what's going on on screen the way it sounds. So 
I, it's kind of par for the course for some seventies movies, but this one was really bad. It just felt like it felt like it was all recorded, you know, secondhand. It felt like I was watching a dubbed movie, like they were speaking Italian and then the actors were, you know, dubbing it over in English. And it wasn't, they were speaking English, but they weren't recording the audio there. So they ended up dubbing over every bit of dialogue. And I'm not sure why they did this. I, I don't know what the reason behind that was, but it makes for a really kind of awful experience when you're watching at home today uh, with these great sound systems that we have now. And sound is such a big part of watching a film today. It's, it's, you know, about as important as the visuals are. And it wasn't the same kind of back then. Um, but it really took me out of the movie. It really made it hard for me to enjoy it. And, you know, I just visually, I think the, the film was fine, but I just didn't find it all that creepy really. So except for the end, I did think the end was very serious, very well done, but uh, I couldn't recommend Suspiria too much. Now I'm interested to see how the new one will be. And basically what the storyline is, uh, is that this woman ends up getting accepted to a European ballet school, very famous ballet school. She goes there the headmistress is is really kind of uh, stern and quiet and mysterious. And as soon as the the new girl gets there, she sees a young woman running away from the school and muttering something under her breath and kind of just running through the woods in the rain, pouring rain. And then that young woman ends up dead by the end of the night. And as the the new woman kind of looks into what happened to that girl, she figures out some very startling things about the school and what's kind of going on there and what happened to this girl. So it's got a good little like mystery story going on, but you know, you won't really be that shocked by it if you're watching it now, because you've seen a lot of movies that deal with the same subject matter with things like the occult and with witchcraft and with, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all that kind of stuff. So I don't think it'll, it has the same bite as it did back then. So that's what I'll be interested to see what the new version of the movie does uh, and how they're able to kind of make this fresh for new audiences. It was, I mean, it was okay. It was, certainly wasn't, I wouldn't call it a bad movie. And I would recommend it if you're interested in art house horror, if you're interested in, uh, if you like 70s horror, then, you know, you should, probably should give it a shot. But I wouldn't tell you that it's on the same par with The Wicker Man or that it's on the same par with Don't Look Now. Um, it's just not, or even on the same part of Halloween. I don't think it's even on the same level as that. So it's one of those that I would only really recommend it if you're like into art house horror, if that's your thing, then, you know, you should check it out, but I wouldn't put it up there with those classics. I wouldn't put it up there with, you know, eyes without a face, which is a much better foreign horror movie. If you ask me, um, but the new one I'll be interested in checking out. I've always kind of thought Dakota Johnson was a better actor than a lot of people give her credit for. So be, it'll be kind of cool to see what she does with that lead role and what they do for a, a newer telling of the film. But Suspiria, the new one, uh, is in theaters, I believe now, in a limited run in some places. And check out the trailer. See if it's something that interests you. You might want to you might want to check it out because visually it does look really creepy. But the original Suspiria from 1977, you can probably find it at your local library. It is considered an important movie, so a lot of places do have it for rent. Um, but I wouldn't recommend buying a copy of it sight unseen just on the reputation of it. I would I would rent it first and see if you're into this kind of thing. And I just found myself not very interested, not uh, not one of my favorites. But that's a, a new old horror movie that I saw for the first time this year that I kind of wanted to give you my take on because the new one is about to hit theaters. Hell is behind that door. Hmm? You're going to meet 
death now. <laughs> the living dead. <laughs> All right, I'm going to take a breather here in my new closet. I'm going to stretch out a little bit. I have a little more room in this closet, even though it is hotter. I'm sweating more than usual, even though it's November. And I'm going to toss things over to Andy. Let's see what's going on in his basement in Dayton. What's he got spinning on the turntable today? Oh, it's the Beatles revolver. Let's hear what he's got to say about it. Take it away, Mr. Sedlak. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Good to be with you after uh, sitting out for a month. Clint asked me to to go back and to listen to every single piece of vinyl I owned and uh, not to return until I did. Well, I listened, and you know what? And like any of them. So now I need all new vinyl. My name is Andy Sedlak. I'm the music editor with the Stream Police Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please uh, subscribe to this podcast. Rate us five stars. Tell somebody about us who's into this kind of stuff. Uh, this show's a labor of love. And the more podcasts that I listen to, uh, the more unique I think this one is. So please help us spread the word. Quick update. You may be aware that uh, I typically record this segment in my basement in Dayton, Ohio usually sipping on a gin and tonic to get those juices flowing. But that's all in the past now. I've converted a spare bedroom in the house to a sort of an office home studio type of thing, and I've got to say it feels pretty good. Feels pretty good. It's got a nice little, it's cozy. It's got a nice little, it's got a nice touch in here. Uh, but if I sound a little boomy or if I sound a little echoey, it's because I don't have much on the walls in here yet. There's really not much in here in general yet. So there's not a ton I can do about it. My voice is kind of bouncing off of the walls. <laughs> It'll get better as we go along, I promise. Your ears will get used to it. But... uh this is a work in progress. It's coming along nicely. Much more comfortable. And I don't have to talk over the dryer in my basement anymore. So that's a plus. So I'm coming to you uh, from the Sedlak Home Studio today. I suppose I maybe I need a name for it. If you have any suggestions, uh, feel free to give me a shout. All right. 
We all have those so-called classic albums that, for whatever reason, just never connected with us. We read over and over again that these things are brilliant, that they're game changers. But for some reason, we're just like, I don't know. I don't hear it. And that's okay. That's fine. Because nobody's tastes are identical. It's healthy to debate. It's healthy to disagree. That's what makes all of this fun. So maybe you think that Nirvana's Nevermind is overrated. Or maybe you think that Kanye West College dropout gets way too much credit. That's okay. Maybe you think Springsteen's Born to Run is overhyped. I'd call you a fucking idiot. But but <laughs> really, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, that's okay too. One of the albums that I always put into that category, always put into that category, was the Beatles' Revolver. I listened to it years ago. It never went back. I thought it was too loopy, too hippy-dippy. And I thought there was way too much sitar. It smacked, to me, of self-indulgence. This was, I think, the first Beatles album made that they had no intention of supporting with a tour. So they weren't going to be playing this music in front of people. This was sort of for them to make the point that they weren't into pop music anymore. In order to get it, I figured you had to be there. Had to be there. Now, I don't know how to explain it, but now, Revolver feels good. What felt strange or weird before now feels good. It's good to wrap myself up in these sounds in these lyrics and I can't fully explain why your day breaks your mind aches you find that all her words of kindness linger on when she no longer needs you she wakes up she makes up she takes her time and doesn't feel she has to hurry she no longer needs you and in her eyes you see nothing No sign of love behind the tears Cried for no one A love that should have lasted years And I'm not alone in not getting it right away Because the Beatles themselves didn't either It's very, it's a very hard at first to understand, yeah Once you get into it, it's the greatest Let me talk about this album in general for just a second. First of all, the title, Revolver, does not refer to a gun, but to an actual record, to an LP. What does a record do on a turntable? It revolves. So it's kind of a joke. 
This came out in 1966. That's the same year as Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde, the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, the Rolling Stones' Aftermath, and Sounds of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. The Who's A Quick One and Sinatra's Strangers in the Night also came out that year. Big year for music. Revolver couldn't have more credibility. VH1, Q Magazine, and Entertainment Weekly have all named it the single greatest album ever made. To date, it's sold 5 million copies in the United States alone. That's enough to certify it platinum five times. To put it within the Beatles' timeline, Revolver came right after the backlash over John Lennon's remarks that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. Big controversy. My question is directed at all of you. Do you think this, uh, this controversy has hurt your careers or has helped you professionally? Obviously, you're quite aware of it. It hasn't helped or hindered it, I don't think. I think most sensible people took it for what it was, and it was only the... Um, Bigots that took it up and thought it was, you know, on their side, they thought, ha-ha, here's something to get them for. But when they read it, uh, they saw that, you know, there was nothing wrong with it, really. It's just that they thought that by us saying, uh, by John saying that we were more popular than Jesus, they thought, ah, you know, he's bound to be arrogant. The Beatles pretty much avoided writing love songs for this record. No love songs. Uh, Not exactly a commercial decision for the group responsible for I Want to Hold Your Hand, not to write any love songs. We can thank God there were no record industry folks in the room at the time that decision was made because they probably wouldn't have allowed it. So what do we have? We've got songs about sex, about social commentary. We've got satires psychedelic songs, at least one song that we can safely call a children's tune. And really, there are love songs on this record, like Here, There, and Everywhere. But even that is more philosophical or spiritual. Not in a church on Sunday kind of way, but in a uh, your energy is my energy kind of way. What's left after the Beatles, for the most part, decide to avoid the topic of love? Which is, what, 90% of all, all commercial music? It's what it's about? Well, their imaginations take over. And their imaginations had a little help. LSD, pot, acid, whatever. Yeah, all of it. Uh, there's no way around it. Revolver has its stoner moments. But those stoner moments are still interesting. This isn't Dude, Where's My Car? This isn't Cheetos and Cartoons. It's art through experimentation, musical experimentation, lyrical experimentation, and experimentation with substances. I wouldn't recommend it for most artists, but the Beatles got away with it. It says something that all four Beatles were proud of this record when it came out, they're all proud of it. Historically, it, it was always tough to satisfy each member's diverse takes, but but this record did it. 
Harrison gave a, a kind of a cheeky quote to the press about how the album Revolver would probably lose them fans, but that was fine because those folks probably like things about the Beatles that group members themselves did not like. So they were taking their ambitions back. And it was Harrison who was responsible for the Eastern influences on the album. All of that sitar. We started off, you know, just hearing Indian music and sort of listening to things, and we liked the drone idea because we'd done a bit of that kind of thing in songs before, you know. But George got very interested in it and went to a couple of Ravi Shankar concerts, and then he sort of met Ravi and sort of was knocked out by him and thought, like, just as a person, he's an, he's an incredible fellow, you know. He's, he's one of the greatest. And... Uh, he thought he didn't know that George was serious about it. And so when he found out George was serious, he was knocked out too. So the two of them are having a great time. <laughs> and, you know, that's how we've got Indian sounds on at the moment. Because the thing is, anyway, it's nice to sort of start bridging the two kinds of music. In a song like Love You Too, the sitar is the dominant instrument. But I hear that song differently now uh, than when I heard it at first. Now I hear it as a total rock song. I mean, the, the, the thing just really opens up and kicks ass when the drums come in after Harrison's intro. And the sitar somehow now feels eclectic, not self-indulgent. And there's so much attitude in Harrison's words. Makes me wonder how I didn't notice it before, honestly. You know, I, and I suppose that music, like everything else, is beholden to the moment in time in which we experience it. Sometimes things don't register when we first encounter them. And then later they do. Remember all that shit music that you listened to in middle school? Sure made sense then, didn't it? Now? Maybe not so much. This is also what makes your favorite albums so special. Because regardless of the context in our lives, they still make sense. They still get through to us. said for years that you have to know how to listen to rap music. You have to be aware of the one-upsmanship and flow and puns and beat and wordplay. It's sort of different from rock or pop or country. And the same is true with Indian music and Revolver. If it seems repetitive, it's supposed to be. That's a trait that it shares with reggae music. You're supposed to get lost in the rhythm, in the chanting. It's supposed to be acceptable. You're supposed to take part in it. It's music meant to participate in, like gospel music. Of course, all of the Indian music and looping and studio tricks come to a head on the last track of the album. It's called Tomorrow Never Knows. It's the one track where they combine all of the sounds that came before it on the record and send the listener away somewhat 
perplexed, and it's by design. If you're somebody that likes clear meaning in your music, it won't be for you. But if you find yourself naturally prone to interpretation, it can be fascinating because that interpretation may mold itself differently with each listen. We decided on this uh, Tomorrow Never Knows Weird Effects. Weird Effects. Uh, well, see, we wrote the song, and it was a very funny start song from the start because John came up with the lyrics to it, and he'd just been reading Tibetan Book of the Dead, and he, want, he was dead impressed by it, you know, very impressed. <laughs> and uh, he decided that he'd um, write the song, and we only had one verse. I think we stretched it to sort of two verses. And we couldn't think of any more words because we'd sort of said it all, what we wanted to say, in about two verses. So we had to try and work out how to sort of do it and how to make it different. So I decided to do some of those, those loops that I'd been doing on my home tape recorder. And they're just tape loops. And I'd been making them. So I just took along a, a, a bag full of six tape loops to the session. And we just tried them and mixed them in and brought them in in those places. And so, uh, so I suppose it was sort of vaguely my idea, that bit of it. For the record, my favorite song on the album is and always has been, probably always will be, Eleanor Rigby. Just got to throw that out there. up the rice in the church where a wedding has been lives in a dream waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door with Eleanor Rigby it was the name that I was looking for it was at the piano I started off doing that when I started off on an E minor chord just vamping jim 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 like the record starts out and then while I was doing that I got this it goes against the E minor chord. And as I was doing that tune, there were these words, uh, picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Now, those are the words that arrived. Then the rest of it was work to try and explain what those words were. And so I knew it was going to be a lonely old lady type song. There's a lot of imagery. Keeps her face in a jar by the door, you know. Father Mackenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near, look at him working, darning his socks in the night when there's nobody there. What does he care, all the lonely people? Where do they all come from? The vicar's name, and we wanted Mac something, Mac, so we got the phone book out and looked for all the Macs, and Cos came across McCartney. And John said, yeah, 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 Father McCartney. Wiping his hands as he walks from the grave. And I said, oh, no, no, I can't do that. You know, because it'll be like my dad. Everyone would be saying, is that your dad, Father McCartney, or is he a vicar, your dad, or something? I said, no, I can't handle that. So we just went a little bit further down the thing and found Mackenzie. And that seemed to work better than Father McKenzie. That works. The thrill of Revolver, I suppose, is in listening to this great group, expand on their musicianship and their influences. They're making new identities for themselves. And at moments you wonder if they're telling you that it's okay for you to do the same. On Revolver, the Beatles pushed themselves into territory that maybe wasn't so clear. It wasn't such a lock. 
Look at a song like Eleanor Rigby and you can tell that McCartney had definitely turned on to a new avenue, one that was probably paved by Bob Dylan. And Lennon and Harrison were right there with him for that matter. Taxman, Dr. Robert, um, I'm thinking back through. I want to tell you are all Dylan-y. Even your bird can sing. Maybe especially your bird can sing. The Beach Boys were maturing at that time. And their influences there, the mamas and the papas, the birds. All of that was being filtered through the lens of the various members of the Beatles. Things don't naturally come together for artists like that too often. But it seems like in 1966, it did for the Beatles. So when I say I enjoy wrapping myself up in it, maybe it's that I'm aware that I'm wrapping myself up in original work. And that is what feels good. A little late to the party, perhaps. Revolver turned 52 years old this year. But better late than never. Are there any records that you've experienced that with? Anything that didn't strike you immediately that you figured maybe should have? But then they hit you later? Or are there records that you're still waiting for that moment like I had with Revolver? Any classics where you're like, I'm sure it'll click, right? It's got to click eventually. Email me, sedlakjournal at gmail.com. That's S-E-D-L-A-K, the word journal, all squished together at gmail.com. That was my phone, not yours. (laughs) I'm eager to hear your takes. And again, share freely. This is a safe space. The stream police, we're here to protect you. Protect you from those self-appointed arbiters of taste. Lord knows they're out there, especially on social media. Jesus, that's a snake pit. I've been to your quite a bit already. I just want to follow up on something I talked to you about a couple shows ago, and that was Eminem's new record, Kamikaze. Here's a quick refresher. Gotta concentrate against the clock I race. Got no time to waste. I'm already late. I caught a marathoner's pace. Went from addict to a workaholic. Word to Dr. Dre and that first marijuana tape. Guess I got a chronic case. And I ain't just blowing smoke. Less is in your mama's face. I know this time Paul and Dre, they won't tell me what not to say. And know me in my party days have all pretty much parted ways. You swear to God, I forgot him. The God it made not afraid. One last time for Charlemagne. And my response is late. It's just how long it takes to hit my fucking radar. I'm so far away. These rappers are like Hunger Games. One minute they're mocking Jay. Next minute they get the stuff from me. Goes to the copy Drake. Maybe I just don't know when to turn around and walk away. But all the hate I call it walk on Watergate. I've had as much as I can tolerate. I'm sick and tired of waiting. I done lost my patience. I can take all of you motherfuckers on it. Once you want it shady, you got it. Can I just say how surprised I was that people just completely shit on this album? I had very positive things to say about it, but apparently I was alone. All music gave it two out of five stars. Rolling Stone, two and a half. The Guardian three pitchfork uh a score of five out of ten consequence of sound b minus metacritic which is a review aggregator has its aggregated review of 62 out of 100 that's barely a passing grade let me say this when people talk about hip-hop being a sport it's because a lot of times rappers are competing with other rappers that's what rap battles were And I like the Eminem album because he was trying to one-up virtually everybody else in the game. It got back to the sport of hip-hop. 
It was taken even further when Machine Gun Kelly released a diss track in response. The song was called Rap Devil, almost five minutes of just savagery. Hello, Marshall. My name's Colson. You should go back to recovery. I know your ego is hurting just knowing that all of your fans discovered me. He like, damn, he a younger me. Except he dresses better and I'm ugly. Always making fun of me. Stop all the thuggery, Marshall. You living in luxury. Hey, look what you've done to me. Dropped an album just because of me. Damn, you in love with me. You got money, but I'm hungry. I like it this, but you won't say them lyrics out in front of me. Shout out to every rapper that's up under me. Know that I'll never do you like this fuckery. Still bitter after everyone loves you. Pull that wedgie out your dungarees. Hey, I gotta respect the OGs. And I know most of them personally. Hey, but you just a bully acting like a baby so i gotta read you a nursery i'm the ghost of the future and you just have the knees of scrooge i said i'm flex anyone can get it i ain't know it would be you i'm sick of them sweatsuits and them corny hats let's talk about it i'm sick of you being rich and you still mad let's talk about it all right now we're down to one-on-one one One guy versus another guy and i'm not kidding this is a sport eminem responded with a track called kill shot and had it been released on the album kamikaze itself It would have been one of the strongest tracks on the record. Two talented MCs going after each other with flow, with wits. The goal is to punish, to win. This is a sport. Yo, Slim, your last four albums suck. Go back to recovery. Oh, shoot, that was three albums ago. What do you know? Oops, know your facts before you come at me, little goof. Luxury, oh, you broke, bitch, yeah. I had enough money in O2 to burn it in front of you, ho. Younger me, no, you to whack me. It's funny, but so true. I'd rather be 80-year-old me than 20-year-old you. God, who do you give the edge to? It's tough. I like it. It actually might be Kelly, but I'm not totally confident in that. Two excellent tracks, totally. All right, you are aware that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. It's up on Spotify right now. Just search Stream Police. In every show, we add five more songs. I thought Clint did a really nice job last week adding, uh, adding five songs in my absence. Now, this time around, uh, here are five more. I think you'll like them. First, it's I Hear a Symphony by the Supremes. You've given me a true love And every day I thank you, love For a feeling that's so new So inviting, so exciting Second, from Bob Dylan, it's Emotionally Yours. Then, Megadeth. Peace sells, but who's buying? (laughs) 
All right, where do we go from there? Um, how about... Yeah, how about Dr. John? This is Gree Gree Gumbo Yaya. If you got love troubles, you got a bad woman you can't control, I got just the thing for you. Something called controlling the hearts will get together drops. If you work too hard and you need a little rest, try my Easy Life Rub or put some of my Boss Fix Jazz in your breakfast. Try a little bit of... Hey now. And finally, it's Living for the Night by George Strait. assortment for you happy listening have fun talk to you in a few weeks peace out thank you very much mr sedlak always good to hear from you glad to have you back this month here on the stream police podcast I recommend you go back into the archives if you want to hear about some things we've talked about in the past. All the episodes are available for free through uh, ACAST and uh, wherever it is that you listen to the show, Stitcher, uh, through iTunes, wherever. Just go back and, and look at the at the uh, look at the old archives of the shows. You'll see what the main topics are right in the titles of the program, and uh, you can read the descriptions if you want to see everything that we talk about in that episode. So if you're looking for a review of a specific show that you wonder if we've talked about. Uh, you can check it out all right there, uh, wherever it is that you find the Stream Police podcast. All right, once again, I'm Clint Davis back in my closet in Columbus. And now I want to tell you about a show that blew my mind. A uh, new show for this fall that, uh, actually it wasn't this fall, I think it debuted in the spring, I want to say. might have been summer on HBO. But anyway, it's a new show for this year. And I'm so excited about this show, and I can't wait to see... Uh, if it comes back, what is going to be done, you know, in the future on this show. But anyway, HBO had a new show that debuted this year called Random Acts of Flyness. And it's not the best title that I've ever heard for a show. It's it's certainly a memorable title, but I wouldn't call it the best title. I wouldn't even say that the title is representative of what's going on in the show. But the show is called Random Acts of Flyness. All right, and it's on HBO. First season is totally available for you to stream on HBO Now, HBO Go. The first season is only six episodes of half of a half hour each. So 
absolutely no reason not to give this show your time if you're interested in what's going on in it. The show was created by a guy named Terrence Nance, who is not really known to me and is not really known to a lot of people unless they're into indie cinema, um, unless they're into art cinema, things like that. He's not a mainstream guy at all. I don't even know what to tell you this show's about, but I will say it talks about race a lot. It talks about gender a lot. It talks about sexism, racism, talks about being black, talks about um, what people get wrong about being black, what people don't understand about you know the things that black people go through, the things that black people think about. It is a show that it's the show is described as a sketch comedy show. But I think that's such a poor description of this show because really you're not going to spend a lot of time laughing at it. A lot of the shit that Terrence Nance talks about in this series is very serious, but I think what why it's called sketch comedy is because we just don't have a term for what this show is. This show is so experimental and, and different and mind-blowing. I mean, every episode of this show blew my mind in one way or another, made me think about things differently than the way I had thought about them before, like everyday things. Um, and it's, it's almost, I mean, it's like a philosophical, it's just, this show is like a tour de force and it's so creative. I'm so glad HBO gave Terrence Nance the platform to do this show. I think he would have done this show no matter what. I think he would have done it on YouTube or something, but not with these production values, but the show looks really good. It's got some great animation in it. It's got, and there's just, there's no real format of the show. So basically every episode has these little vignettes in it. And there is kind of one overlying story. Uh, th- there is one story that kind of overarches out the out of the whole thing, and it, it's about it's Terrence himself and his girlfriend who he lives with, um, and it kind of talks about them and their relationship and the complexities of their relationship. But it's not about the show's not about their relationship. That's just kind of a segue between some of the little vignettes that we get. But the show just concerns itself with society, with uh, myth, with, um, as I said, race, gender, with identity. Um, And Terrence Nance and his writing staff have so much to say that's worth listening to. Um, And like I said, it legitimately did blow my mind a few times watching this show. I just think it was so creative, so untethered to anything. And I really credit HBO for letting them just do whatever they wanted. I can't imagine there were many notes from the network on this show that got taken seriously because watching it, I'm like, no one else would air this. Like this show is dangerous. I feel like, so I think, you know, it's one of those shows that only HBO could kind of do. And, uh, but yeah, you'll see it described as sketch comedy. Don't watch it and expect to laugh a bunch. Cause you're not, I mean, this is not SNL. This is not Tim and Eric. Awesome show. Great job. This is, something totally different and um, something that is definitely worth your time. If you're interested in, you know, kind of knowing more um, about our society, if you're interested in knowing more about the black mind and about the black consciousness and, you know, some things maybe about race that you never thought of, uh, there's one, especially like for you guys, if you listen to the show, I know you're probably big nerds in television and, there was one part of the fifth episode of the first season. So like I said, six episodes, half hour each. So the fifth episode of the, of the first season, there was this whole out of nowhere. There's like this 10 minute segment that breaks down and goes into, uh, shows like the Sopranos, Mad Men, um, 
Breaking Bad especially, uh, the movie Fight Club, and talks about why shows and movies like this may have led to the rise of the alt-right and led to, you know, the man that we now have in the White House. Um, and it's really just out of nowhere, and it's so interesting, and it's like a piece of, it's like something that someone would write, like a PhD piece on television analysis on how TV characters kind of embolden people who want to think of themselves as being wronged by society, but really who are the people who have shaped society all along, uh, you know, being like white men um, and who think they're special because they have problems and who think that, you know, violence makes them special. It it was such a like just and these are shows and movies that I really like, but it makes you think about them in a different way. And it was really powerhouse. And especially for a show that's on HBO to kind of take some shots at the Sopranos like that, I thought was, you know, ballsy for the network to let them do that. But um it's just a, the show is very hard to describe. It's impossible to describe. It's one of those that you just have to watch for yourself. So if you're open to kind of hearing things that you're not going to hear anyone else say, unless you hang out with a lot of radical black people, you're not going to hear these things. Um, if you're just an average white guy sitting in Ohio watching the show like I am, um, you're going to hear a lot of things that you've never heard and, and things that you would have never thought about unless you watch this show. So Terrence Nance um, created the show. The show is called Random Acts of Flyness. Six episodes, one season on HBO. Totally mind blowing. Totally out there. Way experimental. Very creative, um, and some fantastic work being done on this show. I just it, it feels like such artistic freedom was given to him to do this show, and that is a beautiful thing when you got somebody who has as much to say as this guy does. It was a really cool show. I enjoyed every minute of it. I looked forward to watching every episode of it. And I was disappointed when it was over because I wanted more. So that's my only critique. I wish it was more than six episodes. I would have loved, you know, four more episodes of this first season. So we'll see where they go from here. You know, I don't know if it's been picked up yet for a second season. I don't know how it did. I know it got good reviews, but that doesn't always mean a lot. Um, so, yeah. So check it out right now. It's on HBO streaming six episodes. It's called Random Acts of Flyness. And uh, I want to know what you think about it. I really loved it. I, I, I thought, like I said, it was mind-blowing. Random Acts of Flyness is so ecstatic to reveal it to you today. Bitch Better Have My Money. Bitch Better Have My Money is the very first proximity-based social app to use the now ubiquitous technology of genetic ancestry tests to locate the nearest white person that owes a black user money. We help black people connect with the white folks who owe them that 40 acres and a mule. Simply put, our technology allows black users whose ancestors have been enslaved to locate and match with the white families whose ancestors enslaved them. There's much, much more. Our algorithm takes into account medical records, criminal records, real estate records, land rights and treaties in order to make extremely precise determinations about how much our black users are owed due to the contemporary injustices of redlining hiring, discrimination, and, of course, mass incarceration. All right, I'm going to end my part of the show here, as I always do, by giving you a look at some things that are streaming right now on Netflix and Amazon, some new things, something funny and something serious from each one that you should check out for yourself. First off, on Netflix, 
Uh, brand new this month is John Leguizamo's Latin History for Morons. And this is a rare one. Usually I've seen all the things I'm going to recommend that you watch because I don't want to tell you to watch something that I haven't seen myself. But this one I haven't watched yet. It's not actually available until tomorrow when I'm recording this show. Um, so I haven't seen it yet. But everything I've heard about uh, John Leguizamo's Latin History for Morons, it was I don't know if it was Broadway or Off-Broadway, but it was a it was a one man show. And it was it got great reviews. I heard a couple, you know, an NPR story about it. I read, you know, another piece about the show. And it is just that it talks about Latin history, talks about the things that the textbooks get wrong. Leguizamo was inspired to do it when one of his kids uh, in school learned all these things about Latin history that were totally wrong. And they were presented as like total facts. And so he was like, what else are they teaching kids that isn't accurate about Latin you know, history? And so he went and did this show himself, and it's funny, but it's also educational. So those are that's always you know a great space to occupy. Netflix has turned this into a Netflix original. Um, his performance of it, and it's basically a stand-up performance, but um, with you know a little bit more of an educational bent to it as well. So check that out on Netflix right now. It's called John Leguizamo's Latin History for Morons. If you want something serious on Netflix from 1977, I'm going to give you Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It is actually, I would consider it one of the more underrated um, Spielberg movies. It somehow gets overlooked. You know, I mean, everybody, for good reason, talks about Jaws all the time and Raiders of the Lost Ark and, uh, you know, Minority Report and Schindler's List. And I mean, Spielberg's got more great movies than most people, you know, could ever hope to have. He's one of the all-time legends for a reason, but Close Encounters is one of the one of the best movies that the guy ever made, and it's one of the best sci-fi movies to ever be made. It's a beautiful film about communication, um, and it's uh, it's got some of the best work I've ever seen from Richard Dreyfuss. Uh, just intense, um, and a really cool movie that that does kind of get lost in the shuffle. When people talk about mid '70s Spielberg, they talk about Jaws, and then E.T. would come a couple years later. Close Encounters kind of gets lost in the shuffle there. It's it's like his, uh, like with Coppola, the conversation always gets lost because it came between Godfather 1 and 2. Well, I feel like Close Encounters kind of gets lost when people talk about Spielberg, but it is a fantastic movie. I, I watched it for the first time when I was in college, and I've never forgotten it. It's just a great film. Um, so check it out. If you're a sci-fi nerd, if you love sci-fi, Give it a watch. Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 1977, now on Netflix. And on Amazon, something funny for you. One of the absolute funniest movies I've ever seen, The Birdcage from 1996. Um, It has aged well. It's all about, you know, most of the characters are gay men, and it's got some and truly inspired work from Nathan Lane. Gene Hackman is wonderful in it as a straight man. Uh, I mean that in, in the uh, literal sense and the comedy sense. Um, Robin Williams, some of his best over-the-top work is in this movie. And uh, The Birdcage is just a true gem. You'll laugh. I mean, you'll you'll die laughing uh, at this film the whole time. It's so, so funny. And the combination of Nathan Lane and Robin Williams, just you can't get two better like over-actor comedians than those two and and they're kind of at the height of their power in this movie and it's just it's it's a really fun it's a ride man it's such a funny film it's on amazon right now again it's the birdcage from 1996 if you want something serious on amazon let me give you michael clayton from 2007 if you ask me what's the best movie that uh george clooney's ever done i'm not going to tell you uh syriana 
I'm not going to tell you good night and good luck. I'm going to tell you Michael Clayton. I think it's the best piece of work that the guy ever did acting wise. Um, and it's just uh, it's got Sidney Pollack in it in one of his last roles. And it is a tight, tense thriller with a great mystery and one of the best twist endings. Um, and Tilda Swinton won an Oscar for this movie. She's always powerhouse. She's really good in it. And you get to watch Tilda Swinton and Sidney Pollack and George Clooney kind of go toe to toe in a film. I mean, how can you how can you beat that? It's a, it's a cool movie. Michael Layton's really cool, really slick, smooth film, and it's a, just a great drama. Um, and uh, Tom Wilkinson is in it as well. Does some great work. I think he got nominated for an Oscar for his work in Michael Clayton. Very good movie. It got swallowed up in 2007 by a couple other classics with There Will Be Blood and with uh, No Country for Old Men. But it, it, Michael Clayton, I'd put it right up there with those two. It's it's a very good film and kind of flew under the radar a little bit. But it's now uh, streaming for you on Amazon. Give it a watch, especially if you're a Clooney fan. you got to watch Michael Clayton. It's fantastic. Some of his best work. All right, that's going to do it for this month's edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Thanks for hanging out with us. You can reach me at theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com. You can reach Andy at sedlakjournal at gmail.com, S-E-D-L-A-K, journal at gmail.com. We'll talk to you guys next month. Until then, find our playlist on Spotify, and you will not be disappointed. Talk to you next time, my friend. Until then, stream on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.